What's up, everyone? I'm Ryan Shepard. Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm excited to be here with you all today. I'm co-hosting with Ladarian Gillette. We have an amazing a group of panelists uh, to speak with us today. Uh, it's February, so in the US, we're still celebrating Black History Month. Um, so happy Black History Month to everyone. Before we kick off, I want to share a quick fun fact um, that kind of aligns with our topic for today. Um, so this one um, actually came to me this morning from Dr. Mahalat Tedros. Uh, so today is Dr. Rebecca Lee, today is Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler's birthday. She's the first African-American woman to earn her medical doctorate in the US in 1864. Um, many uh, black physicians and, and physicians generally in the US commemorate this day uh, to honor the significant obstacles that black women specifically have had to overcome to make great strides in the medical field. So I thought that was a fun fact. So shout out to uh, Dr. Tedros for sharing that. Shout out to my sister, uh, Dr. Morgan Bryant, who is uh, a medical resident in New Orleans and all the amazing and pioneering women uh, who have made great strides in the medical field. Uh, so with that said, let me kick off today's amazing Tuesday talk uh, which is going to be focused on women and girls in science. Uh, but let's set the context for why we gather every week. The CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women, and we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices and identities in our conversations and programming. And so we all know that for the entirety of human history, women and girls have contributed significantly to the advancement across a vast range of scientific disciplines. And as we celebrate those achievements and contributions, we also recognize the role that science and gender equality uh, are both vital for achievement of the internationally agreed upon development goals, including the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Over the past decades, the global community has made significant efforts to break down barriers for women and girls in science. But in order to achieve full and equal access to and participation in science for women and girls, and to further achieve gender equity and the empowerment of women and girls, the United Nations General Assembly declared February 11th as the International Day of Women and Girls in Science back in 2015. Still, we see a, a, significant, a significant gender gap has persisted through the years at all levels of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics disciplines all over the world. And even though women continue to make tremendous progress towards increasing their participation in higher ed, there's still work for all of us to do to ensure equal, fair, and accurate representation in these fields. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to a group of amazing and pioneering women who are leading the charge to redefine the, uh, the STEM world and create more access for women and girls across all of the sciences. So let me introduce you to our amazing group of panelists. First, I want you to meet Amy Etten. Amy is the Vice President of Client Engagement for Million Women Mentors, the premier network of corporate, post-secondary, nonprofit, government, and K-12 organizations dedicated to supporting girls and women around the world to pursue, persist, and succeed in STEM careers. She's passionate about creating opportunities for individuals from historically underrepresented backgrounds and underserved communities. She has spent her career working to improve the quality of public education for all students and to transform workforce development efforts to meaningfully advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Amy, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Next, I want to introduce you to Anushka Kalanpour. Anushka is the Senior Technical Advisor on the Health, Equity, and Rights Team with CARE. She's a global health practitioner with over 12 years of experience, including the last five years at CARE. Anushka worked in grounded, uh, Anushka's work is grounded in unleashing 
uh, women and adolescent girls leadership in transforming gender and social norms at community and systems levels with the goal of redefining the future of health equity through innovation and technology. Anushka, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Absolutely. And last but not least, I want to introduce you to Sabrina Gomez. Sabrina uh, is a STEM education advisor for the STEM Next Opportunity Fund, leading the Million Girls Moonshot, a national after-school initiative whose goal is to engage one million more girls with engineering mindsets. In this role, Sabrina partners with national organizations to support the 50 after-school state networks in meeting their moonshot goals. Originally from California, Sabrina now lives in Atlanta with her husband, Phil, and newborn son, August. Sabrina, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thank you, Ryan. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so we always like to start off by learning a little bit more about our speakers, about who you are, about your background, where you come from. So I'll ask that each of you share with us what communities you call home and the communities that you're advocating for through your work. Let's hear first from Sabrina, then Anushka, then Amy. Great, thank you, Ryan. And so glad to be here and to see so many of you um, here with us and um, to learn more about empowering girls and women in STEM. Um, like Ryan mentioned, I am a native of San Jose, California, and I am the proud daughter of Mexican immigrants. And I really, um, I really credit my parents and their um, journey and their um, struggles and their successes as immigrants with my own career trajectory and the work that I do now. Um, I am a new mother to a little um, boy, August, who is a black boy. He's also a Latin boy. So um, those are the communities that from my own experience and now through the lens of being a mother are the communities that I really want to work with and to empower. And, and then you'll hear a little later my own personal um, story, but with specifically with the focus on girls. Um, and as Ryan mentioned, you know, the gender um, disparities that exist within all STEM disciplines, beginning from very young, um, you know, we really aren't setting up our young girls for success. Um, so in that, um, you know, that's where um, I focus my attention, my work, um, and, you know, it starts with important talks and raising awareness like we're doing today. Awesome. We're excited to hear more and learn more about your amazing work. Anishka, over to you. Thanks, Ryan. So I was born in India and grew up in a predominantly Indian community in the cosmopolitan city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, my grandparents were actually born in what is now Pakistan and migrated to Mumbai or Bombay uh, in India during partition. So uh, today I am an immigrant and a recent citizen of the United States. Uh, states and live in Washington, D.C. Hi, Marguerite. <laughs> um, these multiple and overlapping identities, themes of migration and exposure, exposure to different contexts um, really made me acutely aware of uh, inequities across gender, race, nationality, um, etc. from uh, a really early age. Uh, today, the communities that I advocate for are women, girls, and other marginalized groups affected by and often displaced by crisis. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you again for being with us. Amy, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for through your work? Thank you. And thank you again for having me today. I'm really uh, proud to be here. I would say um, my stories are a little bit more straightforward, but so I would say I definitely identify with my home, which is Sweet Home Chicago. I was born here and no matter how many times I have tried to leave, I've lived in Michigan, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Texas. I always seem to return back to Chicago. So that is definitely a community that I identify with. And I would say an, an identity that might not be apparent um, through my work or just through knowing me or by looking at me, but is that I am the parent of a child with special needs. So that is a, a community that I am passionate about and advocate for. And then finally, um, throughout my career, I have advocated 
uh, as you heard in my introduction, for individuals from underserved and underrepresented backgrounds, first through public education reform and more recently through workforce development initiatives. I don't have a specific connection. I, it, it's not necessarily something about my upbringing or my background or where I was born, but that is just what compels me and that is what I feel passionate about. So that is how I have spent my career. We love it. We love to hear it. So let's actually pick up from there because uh, you're leading some really amazing work with Million Women Mentors, specifically uh, trying to create greater access around STEM topics and subjects. Tell us about the organization and tell us why this is such an important topic for us to get excited about. Thank you. Sure. So Million Women Mentors, as you shared, is the premier network of organizations, corporate, post-secondary, government, nonprofit, and K-12 that are dedicated to encouraging girls and women around the world to pursue, persist, and succeed in STEM careers through the power of mentoring. We launched Million Women Mentors in 2014 with a goal of making 1 million mentoring connections within five years. And by 2019, we had achieved almost two and a half million mentoring connections. And since that time, we've been leveraging the power of our network to promote the importance of mentoring to share best practices and to connect more girls and women to mentors. And as to why that matters, mentoring is one of the most effective ways to engage girls and women in STEM. Girls who have female role models have more confidence, which is a, a huge challenge and is one of the key factors that takes girls and women off of STEM pathways and out of STEM careers. So that is really an essential component. Um, mentoring has also been shown to predict professional success across many STEM disciplines. And that is especially important for individuals from underserved and underrepresented demographic groups. And then another reason that mentoring is such an important uh, lever is because it is an effective strategy for promoting a variety of educational and workplace outcomes, um, but specifically retention, which is a major issue in STEM, more than half of all STEM degree holders are currently working outside of STEM and rates of STEM diversion, meaning leaving STEM careers are even higher among women and people of color. And furthermore, mentoring has been shown to foster a culture of inclusion and supporting DEI strategies, which again is incredibly important when you're looking at women in STEM. Um, at the end of the day, even though women make up more than half of the, the workforce, women only hold 29% of STEM, uh, STEM positions in the workforce. Thank you for setting that context and thank you for uh, the amazing work that you are that, that you all are leading. Um, I saw Sabrina, you nodding along as we kind of heard some of those facts and around the significance of mentorship. So I wonder if you might wanna jump in here and tell us a little bit about how your background, your experience relates to the importance of STEM for families and for underrepresented communities. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just what, um, what Amy was discussing about the importance of mentors, I feel that I've lived in my own personal life um, and especially in my career. And I really believe that you know, STEM has the power to lift up families and really put them on a trajectory so that they can thrive. And it really also has the power to build healthy communities. And I don't have to go any further than my own lived experience, specifically with my father. So my father was an immigrant from Northern Mexico and he immigrated to the United States back in the early seventies when he was 16. Um, and being, um, feeling excluded from your traditional school, he found um, kind of a refuge and mentors in the after school, out of school time space, ultimately um, gaining a GED at a community college, but at that community college, really taking advantage of technical coursework um, and through a public-private partnership, ultimately landed a job at Hilla Packard in the Silicon Valley. And that job was more than just a job because it really allowed him and in turn, my mother, myself, my family, it really lifted us from poverty and put us on that trajectory to living a middle-class 
um, lifestyle in California in the 80s and the 90s. And in so doing, it opened up, um, you know, just so many resources from quality public um, schools, from good health care, um, and, you know, all the other components that really go into um, building healthy communities so that our young people can thrive in STEM and do have that um, ability. So um, for me, you know, having um, mentors, especially for um, young girls, especially for immigrant populations, really fathers tend to be one of the biggest barriers for um, immigrant girls um, being interested and staying engaged and persisting in STEM. So seeing my father and really allow and really him allowing me to, you know, be that middle school, um, you know, student and like loving science and, you know, being a part of state after school science fair competitions, um, you know, really allowed me to just thrive. So, um, you know, the power of mentors, um, the power of just, um, you know, STEM in communities is so, so important. I love that story. And um, I'm, I'm also from California. So anytime I hear about someone from my, my part of the world, um, I feel it an especially um, close tie to that. And some of what you, you mentioned made me think of, um, you know, my younger sisters. So I have three younger sisters that have now earned degrees in STEM fields. And uh, for two of them, from the very beginning of their lives, ever since they were, you know, young girls, they always said they wanted to be doctors. And that was the North Star. And that was the thing that they pursued. One, like I mentioned earlier, is doing her residency down in New Orleans, and the other will graduate med school this May. And it's a tremendous kind of like source of inspiration for me to see how they've persisted and how they found their way in the uh, in, in the STEM fields generally, but specifically in the healthcare space. And so Anushka, I know that your work at CARE focuses a lot on those types of pathways. How do we get better representation across STEM fields generally, but specifically uh, in healthcare? So I would love for you to share a bit with us about how you think about that and how we create better opportunities. Perfect, thanks Ryan. And honestly, uh, the themes that Amy and Sabrina both mentioned are you know, so clear in the work that we do at CARE. So at CARE, we really recognize that strengthening health systems requires reinforcing linkages between frontline healthcare workers and communities to ensure that the most marginalized and vulnerable have access to quality essential health services aligned with, of course, universal health coverage. So CARE, when we talk about frontline health workers, uh, we mean everyone from you know, a community health worker to a skilled birth attendant, essentially all individuals who have received at least six months of training of health service delivery, who do uh, largely primary health service or information delivery to really the hard to reach populations. In my work focused on public health emergencies as well as humanitarian crises, it's clear that, as you all have said, investing in, supporting, and protecting, in this case, frontline health workers, 70% of whom are women and who are crucial for community engagement and participation in health efforts is essential for community-centered, gender-transformative, and more equitable health systems. Um, and going back to this you know, theme of youth, we really start even before that, right? We recognize that gender and other overlapping factors, marginalization impact girls um, as children, as adolescents. Um, I don't need to tell you all, but you know, adolescence is a significant transition period and a unique window of opportunity to shape healthy and successful development of future generations. We know that there are millions of young people around the world who remain vulnerable to threats such as early marriage, school dropout, HIV, unintended, unintended pregnancy. Um, for these girls, childbirth-related uh, complications are really a leading cause of death. So at CARE, we take a socio-ecological approach, which basically means that you know, we work at that individual level. Um, around, um, yes, information sharing and things like that, but exactly what my panelists mentioned today, um, the self-esteem, the confidence, the communication, being able to have those life skills is really crucial. And then also working at the influencers level. Sabrina mentioned her father. So, you know, the parents, the teachers, working at the school systems levels, the healthcare systems levels, to really address and transform gender and social norms at those different levels to really create a more enabling environment for um, adolescent girls. 
Um, so, you know, at CARE, we actually take, uh, we work even more specifically with subgroups of adolescents who are at increased risk. So one project that I'm very proud of that um, I'm happy to share more information on called Amal Adolescent Mothers Against All Odds. Uh, we're implementing that in Syria and Nigeria for crisis affected pregnant adolescents and first time mothers, where, you know, again, as this theme has come up, meaningfully engaging them, leveraging their leadership so that they can be, you know, not just connected to resources to meet their own needs, but actually um, contribute to being um, first responders and supporters of other girls in their community. Um, we have plenty of examples like this. I know um, some of my colleagues who might be on the call today have worked on projects that, you know, work with adolescents to imagine other futures for themselves, to delay first birth, delay marriage, so that they can explore uh, career opportunities, livelihood opportunities, etc. So really where I think all of this lands is that we see that from our programming, investing in adolescent girls and women, both in terms of those life skills, but also, as you all are saying, the technical or clinical skills as midwives, frontline health workers, reap significant benefits, not only for themselves, their households and communities, but actually COVID has demonstrated that they are key to ensuring continued access to other essential health services during crisis. I'll leave you with an example that I was particularly inspired by. So in Myanmar, we had been working there for a while uh, with frontline healthcare workers. And at the start of the pandemic, we saw that women in community-based village savings and loans paid money out of their own funds to get first aid and vaccination training. So they could provide um, first aid, COVID-19 messaging, as well as services around vaccines and midwifery services in their communities when formal services got overstretched or cut off because of quarantine. So, you know, this again really goes back to this theme of investing in adolescent girls and women, supporting them to overcome these barriers, supporting their leadership. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And thank you for um, the amazing work that you're leading within CARE. Um, I, I think uh, much of what you said kind of connects back to what Amy talked about around the significance of mentorship and also how having advocates and mentors at various kind of stages can help to change systems and create pathways. So Amy, maybe you can carry us forward a bit by talking more about kind of the proven re the research that proves the value of mentorship and some of the ways that mentorship might plug into those different systems levels that Anishka described. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Um, so when you're just thinking about uh, girls in K-12 education, despite common assumptions, girls and boys do perform similarly in STEM throughout their K-12 education. And their interest in STEM Girls' interest in STEM begins as strong as boys, but starts to fall behind by the end of high school. A lot of that has to do with their confidence, and that is driven by outside influences, as we've heard, by family, by teachers, by societal messages. Um, and at Million Women Mentors, we think about some of the we think about challenges in five buckets, if you will. We think about the demographic challenges the belief gap, the basic skills gap, the post-secondary skills gap, and the geographic gap. And all of those factors sort of come together and put pressure on, well, on everyone, but in this case on girls that might, and might make them not feel confident to pursue uh, a, STEM, a STEM education. And so for these reasons, and as I shared before, there are several factors that have been shown to bolster girls' confidence and involvement in STEM, one is participation in STEM activities outside of school, and that's where you know, Million Girls Moonshot plays a critical role. But then the other is the presence of female role models in STEM. So making sure that we are exposing young girls to women in professional STEM positions early on is essential. We've all heard the saying, you have to see it to be it. Um, you have to know what's available. You have to know what the opportunities are. And then as you move forward, by the time uh, girls or young women are in, uh, in their post-secondary education, for those that do pursue a post-secondary education and despite similar interest and competency levels, they pursue STEM degrees at drastically lower rates than men. And while women earn 57% of bachelor's degrees, they only hold 36% of STEM degrees which means that only 11% of women earning bachelor's degrees 
earn STEM degrees. And again, we, it's implicit bias, stereotyping and sexism in the post-secondary space that often deter women from completing STEM degrees. So again, having mentors or organizations that support women with other women along the way are essential for keeping women in STEM education and on STEM pathways. And then when you get to the workforce, it looks quite similar. And I'll wrap up, Brian. Um, but you know, we're seeing women leaving the STEM workforce at higher rates than they leave other professions. Women, 50% um, of women in the STEM workforce leave their chosen industry within 12 years. And in the US labor market, if we could cut female attrition by 25%, that would add over 200,000 highly qualified women to the STEM talent pool. So again, having mentors, workplace mentoring mentors is essential. Again, as I shared earlier, for retention and building a culture of inclusion. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I didn't mean to come off of mute there. Um, but what would be really cool for us when we do recaps at the end of all of our Tuesday talks is if we could share links or share some of those important statistics, because we as a community like to be armed with the information uh, as we go forward to advocate in our own spaces. Um, and a, a lot of what you talked about um, connects to changes that we need to make to our school system, so our education system. Um, and Sabrina, I know quite a bit of your work um, focuses on that with the Million Girls Moonshot. Tell us a little bit about the aspirations and the goals there and how you all are looking to reimagine education uh, for girls around STEM. Yeah, I would be happy to. So the Million Girls Moonshot is a national after-school initiative that is being led by the STEM Next Opportunity Fund. And the goal of the Million Girls Moonshot is to engage 1 million more girls with an engineering mindset. And when we think of an engineering mindset, for us, it's not so much that girls will pursue um, engineering degrees and become engineers. That would be phenomenal and fantastic. And we're not opposed to that. But we're actually taking a step back and we see an engineering mindset as really a problem solving mindset. Developing the skills and capabilities in our young girls and really our uh, young people um, traditionally underrepresented in the STEM fields, developing their capacities to look around themselves, look around their communities, around their cities, in their worlds, um, and to begin to learn how to identify problems, work with teams to then solve those problems and those challenges. That's what we believe an engineering mindset is. But we know we can't do that um, solely through our school systems. Um, and one of my favorite kind of statistics um, that I love to share that I think really surprises folks is the majority of time, so young people spend 80% of their waking hours outside of the formal classroom space. This is space before they, they even get into the school system, on weekends, over the summers. And if we concentrate, if we solely concentrate our time on that 20% in school, we're really not doing our young people justice. We need to meet them where they are, whether that's in after school, whether that's in summer, whether that's over um, you know, breaks from school and really work to design um, programming and offerings that really speak to our young people and that will get girls engaged. Amy mentioned um, several strategies that the Million Girls Moonshot um, really focuses on, one being the importance of role models and mentors, but research also so shows that families have to be a critical component of engaging, recruiting, engaging, and keeping young girls um, in STEM fields. Um, so really what we do is work with um, after-school systems and programs and have them think about, you know, what is your family engagement strategy? How are you involving families as equal players in the design and development of programs, the delivery of programs, and even the evaluation of programs as well. Another strategy that we, um, we support after school systems and programs with is around equity and inclusion, but specific strategies um, to again, recruit and retain girls. And one is around the, um, 
the, the content of the program. And young girls really being driven by, and youth in general, really driven by um, content that speaks to their own lived experiences, things that they can actually see, touch, feel, taste, um, things that you know, are, are just common to them um, really excite girls. And there's one study I think put out by um, the um, Girl Scouts of the United States saying that girls aren't necessarily um, are hooked by the potential of careers that make a lot of money, for example. They really want careers where they can give back to their communities and to the world. There has to be that sort of element. So helping programs and after-school systems design um, these offerings with these strategies that research has shown really helps engage and, um, and, and keep girls involved. Yeah, and as you, as you talk through that in schools, and um, I couldn't help but think about the last, I guess now two years, uh, where all of us have kind of had to transition to virtual environments and different ways of engaging. And we certainly know that this has been uh, the experience and, uh, and a challenge for our young people uh, as well. And so as we think about kind of the role of technology and breaking down barriers and how we adapt to this ever-changing uh, world with COVID. Anushka, I wonder what you think about how we might better leverage technology or the possibilities um, to use it as a tool to break down barriers. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, and as others have mentioned, I think starting with breaking down those gender and social norms, working along those ecological model. In addition to that, I believe digital transformation uh, enabled through a diverse ecosystem of partners um, is going to be uh, really critical to revolutionizing the future of healthcare and access in particular in the next few years. So um, as the world continues to address inequities in health, digital technologies, of course, have an immense potential to contribute. But I think it's important that we also recognize that it has the potential to reinforce inequities, right? So we know that in low and middle income countries, most people access the internet via, via mobile. And for many, it's the only way to get online. It has provided people with a key means to keep in touch and access Im important information, services, and opportunities to support their lives and livelihoods, particularly during lockdowns. Six years ago, about a third of the world's population were using mobile internet. Today, it's half, more than half of the world's population. The COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated digital transformation around the world. And the rapid expansion of health and other essential services, including education, has highlighted the importance of the internet. Despite this progress, the pandemic has also highlighted how big gaps, um, how big gaps in connectivity persist, even in um, developed countries, high income markets, etc., due to a lack of mobile broadband coverage uh, or because of other barriers around affordability, um, lack of awareness, uh, lack of perceived relevance, etc. So, with all of this in mind. It is really, really crucial that the North Star for Health Technology is a model in which care is more accessible, effective, sustainable, and resilient. This will enable us to better serve patients in their communities and decrease the burden on healthcare providers. In order to make this happen, first and foremost, going back to, I think, the biggest theme today, we need to continue to invest in women and girls in affected communities' leadership. So whether it's refugees, immigrants, BIPOC communities, women and girls, SOGI populations, we need to ensure that they are at the decision-making tables for policy and programming on health and technology. This is critical for ensuring that the future of health is more responsive to the needs of these communities. With this, I believe we can transform, one, access to trusted, reliable health information through messaging platforms, for example, that are, that have the potential to democratize access to health information by connecting communities to trusted, reliable sources. Two, supporting not only one-way, but two-way communications that integrate feedback mechanisms, lift up voices of affected community members to contribute to more accountable health systems. And we have a couple of exciting examples from CARE on that, but I won't get into it right now. Third, uh, improving access to medical expertise. So whether it's with telehealth or AI, or um, other aspects, and uh, improved access to medical, um, to medical commodities, including uh, vaccines, diagnostics, devices, 
um, through stronger supply chain systems um, obviously has a huge uh, influence to play on quality of care. So finally, the feasibility of all of this will really rely on sustained broad-based and equitably distributed capacity investment and partnerships across the health and technology ecosystems grounded in community level partnerships with women and girls at the center of all of this. Thank you. I love it. I love every bit of that. Um, Amy, I see you nodding in agreement. I wonder um, if you could just share a bit about how you all are leveraging technology. Sure. Well, the great news about technology is that in many cases, and I realize there are limitations, but it allows us to connect students with role models uh, and mentors that they might not otherwise be able to connect with if they were limited to in-person connections. Um, and again, I realize that there are issues with technology access, so I am not discounting that. Um, but we are using technology in a number of ways to continue providing support to girls and women in STEM. Um, some of the ways that we're doing it with our, with our, with, with girls, um, our Million Women Mentors State Committee in Wisconsin has been hosting a series of virtual events uh, to, in, to introduce girls to STEM in a fun and meaningful way. Um, I think, I, I forget which of my other uh, panelists mentioned that the content, I think it was Sabrina needs to connect to their live experiences. But so um, the committee was teaching middle school girls about algorithms through making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So that was one you know, fun activity and there was more to it, but that was just one way to connect it and make it fun and relevant. We are actually in honor of International Day of Women and, and Girls in Science this week, hosting an event with our Million Women Mentors member Olay. It's called Females Face the STEM Gap, Mentoring and Beyond. And instructional leaders across the country are gonna be hosting watch parties with high school girls. And they will be, the girls will be hearing from four <clears throat> women of color who have achieved tremendous success in their STEM careers. And these women are gonna talk about their STEM education, their STEM careers, the challenges, the benefits, and the role that mentoring has played, as well as how to seek out and maintain and develop relationships with mentors. Um, so those are some of the ways that we're using technology with our, with our girls that are still in school. Um, but then when we think about our women who are, who are already in the workplace, um, we are Million Women Mentors Turkey um, just stood up, stood up, we stood up a chapter in Turkey during the pandemic, and they were really able to do this by using technology to facilitate mentor matching, to handle the scheduling, to share content, to conduct training. And um, finally, um, this is sort of last but not least, um, we're also just looking at ways that we can disseminate information and, and share it out um, and make it real. So we wrote a paper recently called Workplace Mentoring in STEM. It's a guide to formal mentoring programs. And we hosted two virtual events, again, using technology um, to present the paper and the findings. And we had speakers from the Aspen Institute, Intel, National Grid, uh, Northwestern Mutual, PepsiCo, all sharing their experiences with workplace mentoring in STEM. So you know, technology is, is helpful. It's, you know, in the case of the Wisconsin event, we're able to reach girls across the state that we wouldn't be able to reach um, with, a, with a smaller in-person event. There are parts of Wisconsin that are urban, there are parts of Wisconsin that are rural, and this allows everyone to have the same opportunities. Same with the event with Olay. I'll stop here, but technology has been a very important role for continuing our work, has played a very important role for continuing our work. Yes, it sounds like it has. And just as it's giving us the opportunity to connect uh, here at Tuesday Talks in many, many parts of the world and to learn from each other. So it truly has the, uh, the power to be transformative. We have some great questions coming in from the audience. Um, Ladarian, let's get you in here to, to march us through the Q&A. 
Thanks, Brian. And thanks to the speakers. I think one of the themes for today is around access and opportunity. I think each of you have spoken on that in particular. So one of the questions we got from Marguerite in DC. Hi, Marguerite, one of our colleagues, um, is how are you all reaching girls in low-income neighborhoods and families that don't have access to after-school programming? I think that's super crucial, especially as we look at the type of world we live in today. And um, like Sabrina, and I think a number of you mentioned, sometimes if communities or families don't understand the importance of STEM or or, or know about the resources, how can we expect their children to get into it as well? Um, so would love to maybe start with that question with Sabrina and then hear from Anushka and then hear from Amy. Sure, so we work, a million, um, million Girls Moonshot um, believes in a systems approach to engaging more girls and young people in STEM. And that's why we work through the 50 state after school network. So every state in the United States has a uh, after school state network who is charged with um, a few things. One being um, supporting after school programs um, in STEM, but also with other programming. Um, and each uh, network has a strong advocacy and policy component. And they advocate for increased funding for after school and out of uh, and summer learning. And one of the silver linings of COVID that I think many of us here on this call didn't need a pandemic to tell us that additional funding for out of school time learning is critical for young people's success. And we're seeing those funds now trickle down from the federal level with Build Back Better, with ESSER funds, going down to states specifically to expand after school and summer learning programs and to have school districts partner with summer learning programs so that we can help mitigate that learning loss of the past couple of years. So I'll say that is um, you know, one way that we at the networks, we advocate for those policy changes. Um, I would also, um, Gosh, I just lost my train of thought. I'll, I'll let one of the other speakers and I'll hopefully remember my, my point number two. Sure, happy to jump in. Um, so, you know, in many of the contexts that uh, I work in, um, specifically in uh, crisis affected contexts, um, and including with the populations that we work with who might already be out of school, um, we, uh, this is something we face all the time, right? So um, in these sorts of contexts, uh, very often CARE or other organizations are implementing and do support things like women's and girls safe spaces where um, girls can come in and receive information or create more of a supportive environment. Um, and, uh, and, and things like that. So very often, you know, in the spirit of integration and meeting the holistic needs of these communities, we um, are really trying to, you know, engage um, and, and leverage existing um, platforms to then um, integrate these activities into those places. Um, in, uh, you know, uh, given that so much of the work we do, especially around sexual reproductive health, is quite taboo in many of the contexts in which we work, we usually start um, in, you know, a way that's a little more, uh, a little bit easier to begin with, right? So for example, with the Amal project in Syria for pregnant adolescents, we first identified adolescent girls who were already coming in uh, for antenatal care services or other health services to the health facilities. We started to work with them, um, build trust with them as well as their communities. And then as we were able to do that, we built the leadership skills of those adolescents and then um, were able to then reach out to even more uh, marginalized adolescents more at the last mile. We also leveraged frontline health workers, community health workers, again, going back to this concept of trust and uh, reaching that, that very last mile. I'll pause there, thank you. Sabrina, should I jump in or did you want to share your second? Yeah, comment? I just I just remembered uh, something that we've seen um, in the pandemic as schools and after school programs close, we've seen communities turn to other places where people gather to provide STEM activities for girls and young people. So I think of community centers 
I think of um, places of um, religious institutions, any place where folks were to some extent informally gathering um, and still continuing to gather um, to provide STEM activities and to really engage young people in the community. Okay, so um, I'll give my answer, but we also employ a systems approach. You heard me say earlier that we are a network that is cross-sector, cross-industry, and that is for that very reason that we need to reach talent at all ages and stages of workforce development. And it is such a complex problem that it cannot be solved by any one individual organization, sector, industry alone. There is no silver bullet, this is very complicated. And so as an example, I shared earlier that our Million Women Mentors State Committee has been hosting events. We have uh, state committees in approximately 30 states and they consist of representatives from a variety of organization types. So one that is coming to mind our public libraries are, uh, there is a STEM center at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. We are really trying to bring uh, and connect with students in every way that we possibly can and women in the workforce as well. So that is how we connect with uh, talent and future talent that might not have school access to after school activities. And then we're also using social media. We've put together, in my mind, a brilliant series so far of STEM careers resources for students. And we are highlighting different industries that folks might not think of as being associated with STEM. We did a tremendous one on food and agriculture being STEM and all the neat STEM careers. You can have meaningful STEM careers uh, to benefit society in that sector. We did a great one in, in, on the insurance sector. Many people don't grow up thinking, well, insurance must be really exciting. But I'm telling you, there are a lot of cool things that are being done with technology and drones and artificial intelligence in the insurance industry. So we are putting out free resources as well, using social media platforms. And I'll give one last example, which is, again, with Olay, we did an event earlier in the year that was somewhat similar, and the goal was to reach 1,000 high school students, and we recruited through TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. So that is how we are doing our part to connect with students that might not have access to after-school programs. Thank you for that, Amy, and thank you for plugging in social media, too. I think that's very much um, one tool that's becoming super useful now, especially now that things are hybrid, but especially for young adults and for teenagers. There is a question in the chat, but we're running um, short on time. If you all can answer in the chat, Amy, Sabrina, Anishka, um, around places that we could go to to donate laptops and other um, IT equipment. I think organizations like CARE and other large organizations constantly go through new software, hardware every few years. Um, it's always hard for us to find places to donate that to. So if you all know of any, please feel free to drop that in the chat. Um, and I'll make sure to share it out post email as well. Um, so with that being said, Ryan, I'm gonna pass it back over to you to ask our last question. Yeah, thank you. And thank you again to all of our speakers. And I guess just also as a follow up to what Ladarian mentioned, um, I guess we're holding intention some of what Caroline and Marguerite uh, pointed out about, you know, thoughtful, ethical, environmentally friendly ways that we might uh, repurpose equipment. So if you have resources, please do pass along. Um, our last question of the day um, is one that I always look forward to, and that's look, uh, looking to hear from each of our speakers about one thing that you're doing to create joy or something that's bringing you deep joy these days. Let's hear from Sabrina, then Amy, and we'll get our last word from Anishka today. Sure, well, the very first thing that comes to mind is um, my little son who will be six months next uh, week. So he has occupied most of my time <laughs> the past few months. Um, and it's just been a joy to see him grow and, and develop and, you know, sometimes have him on my lap as I 
work and am on Zoom calls um, and just really wanting to foster in him and show him that, you know, women are in various places of work, including STEM, and they hold positions of influence and power, and he will grow up knowing that. So that's been a source of joy. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we succumbed to the peer pressure of my two sons and brought home a COVID puppy last weekend. He is super cute. He is a lot of work. Um, but in terms of self-care, walking and listening to podcasts, I have really enjoyed my time walking, which never really seemed like that interesting of an activity before, but just getting outside and changing the scenery and looking around and taking time to relax and sort of smell the roses, if you will, has really been enjoyable. And it's really been nice in that my husband and I have been able to do a lot of that walking together, which gives us just sort of a special time to connect and see the joy in the pandemic. Um, for me, I think uh, something that has been a key theme on today's call and uh, also for me during the pandemic um, it has been really utilizing, um, you know, technology to connect with uh, those I love, many of whom are, you know, very far away, uh, which made it very difficult not seeing them for a long time. But um, I think, yeah, really connecting over FaceTime and Zoom and WhatsApp and all of that. And uh, I've had multiple um, baking sessions with uh, friends in multiple time zones all together, which has uh, brought me a tremendous joy. So, thank you. I love it. So we, we often get baking and walking and outdoors and family time. Uh, these are truly like the most common themes of what are bringing folks joy these days. Um, I'm happy to participate in all of those activities. They all bring me uh, great joy as well. With that said, we're at the end of our time today. Uh, let's have all of our participants who are willing and able turn on your camera, turn on your microphone, join us in giving a round of applause and appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you so much. With that said, we'll leave the chat open for a few more minutes. DJ Sofa, take us away with another amazing set.